This is Monocle on Design, a show where we explore everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we look at the impact of living in spaces at the cutting edge of design. We'll visit the Rietveld Schroeder House in the Netherlands and talk to a photographer who grew up in a home designed by Australian architect Ivan Ivanov. We'll also dig into our own archive, revisiting High Sunderland in Scotland. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. We're starting today in the Dutch city of Utrecht and paying a visit to one of the country's most unique residences, the Rietveld Schroeder House. Designed as a family home in 1924 by two non-architects, Truus Schroeder, a widowed mother of three, and Gerrit Rietveld, a local furniture maker, it's one of the best-known architectural landmarks of de Stijl, an abstract art and architecture movement popularised by the likes of Piet Mondrian. Centred around a minimal functional approach, the house was listed as a UNESCO heritage site in 2000 and was known for its lack of fixed rooms and its experimental use of space. It's certainly an unusual approach to homemaking, which begs the question, what was it like to actually live in such a house, a house that many considered ahead of its time? To find out, Monocle's Charlie Filmer Court spoke to Natalie Dubois, Curator of Design and Applied Arts at Central Museum in Utrecht. The Rietveld Schroeder House is a one-of-a-kind. There's only one in the entire world. And it's in Utrecht at the end of the, or the border of the city centre. So from the central station, it would be a 30-minute walk. And when you walk to the house, you cross a park and a neighbourhood with all these 1900, 1910 houses. So these mansions, it's a chic neighbourhood, all bricks and gardens, a lot of greens big houses, and then suddenly you see as if a UFO has landed. <laughs> There's this house on the corner of the street, and it's built up by all kinds of greys, white. So it's a pattern of colors. So white, gray, blue, red, yellow. And it's a house, it, it's very open. There's a lot of glass. It's focused on the outside. And uh, it looks very, very modern, but it's almost 100 years old. Obviously, you mentioned that it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. I think your kind of UFO analogy really hits the nail on the head there. <laughs> but aside from obviously its, its distinctive look in the neighbourhood, could you maybe talk us through some of the, the aspects that are particularly notable? Yeah, I think what's very important is that it sort of was built out of nothing. There was no example for Rietveld. He was not even an architect. He did it really out of nothing. So there was nothing similar, nothing even coming close to this. So I think it really, yeah, it appeared out of nothing, just I think by conversations. And yeah, they discussed about it and... Of course, Rietveld was influenced by what was happening around him, but he was not very much into theory. Yeah, he was a furniture maker. He was working with his hands. And I think that was also the approach by the house. So they had this conversation. How do you want to live? How do you want to use space? And then he made a shape out of it. And yeah, then this really extraordinary modern house appeared and then of course it appeared in a time there was also when the style movement came up so it really fits into that period but it was not like it was coming out of a specific theory or a movement it just fits in the movement i think 
How much was its design guided by an approach and a way of living? You mentioned there that it was, I know that True Schroeder had a, a big impact on this as well, but it wasn't just designed with the aesthetics in mind. It was designed completely as a way of life almost. It was very different. It's full of these straight lines, kind of angular, and you look at everything else on the road and it's, you know, ornate brick houses. How yeah. was it reacted to at the time? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Pictures of the house appeared in magazines in the 20s, actually almost all over the world, from Poland, France, a lot in the Soviet Union, Germany, Japan, the United States, all magazines from the 20s, we find pictures of the house, but not in Utrecht. <laughs> so there's nothing we could find in newspapers from that period, Utrecht newspapers or even Dutch newspapers. Of course, it was published in the Stel magazine. The Stel was a magazine founded in 1917 and four times in a magazine, the house was published, but that was it. So nothing local, nothing Dutch, only abroad. So reactions from all over the world and people wrote to Trish Schroeder, Mart Stam, Elisitsky came over to visit the house. But yeah, not really something local. I always have this question in mind, what did the neighbors think of it? <laughs> but we haven't found a source on that, unfortunately. Looking at it, not just in, in Utrecht, but maybe in, in terms of the Netherlands in general, this is now one of the best known examples of the style architecture. How important yeah. was the house to the movement? Well, it was published in a magazine, so it was recognized as uh, one of its yeah, that it belonged to the movement. But Rietveld was at that time not very active in the movement. He didn't write any articles in the magazine. I think he was really busy. He just got six kids. Uh, there was this relationship with Miss uh, Schroeder. He moved out from his workshop and became an architect. So really a busy period. So no time for theoretical stuff, I guess. So we also cannot find sources that he discussed the design with other style members. There's one postcard by Van Doesburg, the founder of the style movement, that he writes to Rietveld like, hey, I heard you are busy with something. Tell me more about it. You are so quiet. Please share it with us. But I think he didn't do it. And so he sort of went solo in this project while... Um, the style movement, actually, a lot of artists work together, like sculptors, architects, craftsmen, they all work together. But with the Schroederhaus, he did it alone. So he did the furniture, the architecture, but also coloring the walls, the floor pattern. So that was actually not really how the style maybe would have liked it or loved it. But still it fits in because of the open shapes, the geometric forms, the primary colors, and this mingling of architecture, painting, furniture. But then he did it himself, of course, with Miss Schroeder together. You mentioned there that he might not have played the game in, in terms of promoting it and being part of a movement. He, he kind of went and did his own thing. But yeah. one of the things I did find absolutely fascinating when I was at the house was that despite it being objectively beautiful and an architectural marvel, it really didn't give off the kind of vibe that it was an easy place to live. And there's a lot of mention in, in the tour that it was almost like a full-time job. The children, you know, weren't allowed to have too many possessions because there was nowhere to put yeah. them. I found it amazing, really, that in one of the children's bedrooms, they weren't allowed curtains. They had to put up these kind of specific 
wooden boards that were made just for those positions. And, you know, if you look at the comfort that other people on the street were probably experiencing, it's, it's a huge change, isn't it? But how difficult was it for them to live in there and, I guess, to maintain it? I think it was hard, though. We have to keep in mind that the way we show it now, it's quite empty. But if you look at pictures from the 20s, uh, you see that there were some, like, pillows, a tablecloth. There were some flowers in the house, some plants. So there was a little bit more than you see uh, right now. But still, it was very Spartan. There was not much privacy. It was much smaller than the house they used to live in. Schroeder lived in a huge mansion with many, many bedrooms. I think nine bedrooms, a household, her three kids. And then she moved here. So it was really radical. And then what's really special in the house, so they lived on the top floor and there are no walls on the top floor. When Rietveld um, designed like the first sketch, there were walls and Schroeder asked, can we remove the walls? And Rietveld said, of course we can. And he put some sliding walls in it, which you probably have seen. So if you want to go to bed, you have to make your own bedroom by sliding the walls. Every morning you have to open it. You really have to work if you want to study you have to open something. You really have to decide how you want to live, how you want to spend your day. So it's not an easy way of living. And I think for the kids, the kids lost their father just before they moved to this house. And she wanted to live literally nearby them, so really close. So yeah, there was not much privacy. I think it must have been hard for the kids but yeah i think they were not traumatized <laughs> the commitment is amazing it is literally living and breathing your work isn't it definitely definitely and uh, really decide to live yeah with as less as possible yeah no it's, it's it's fascinating really that they did that to themselves but i guess the yeah. the house and how it is 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 the ultimate outcome and and the fact that it's still standing there today is pays testament to that yeah, and it's quite modern. I mean, if you see what happens now with the tiny houses, with wanting less and less stuff, uh, that's what she already did. And flexible housing, yeah. Ahead of their time. Yeah, definitely. And she lived her, her the rest of her life. So they moved in in 25 and she died there in 85. So she lived there for 60 years. And yeah, we found a notebook where she writes that she's probably the only person who could appreciate living there because it is hard. And actually the house also changed with her, with aging. So it didn't look the way it looks now for 60 years. It really changed. So at a certain point, there were curtains, actually. <laughs> that was Natalie Dubois speaking to Monocle's Charlie Filmer Court. Perth, Western Australia is the world's most isolated major city. There's a remoteness to it, which means that from time to time, architectural masterpieces slip under the radar. Case in point is the work of designer Ivan Ivanov, who's little known beyond the west coast of Australia. Born in Bulgaria in 1919, Ivanov studied architecture in Germany before moving to Perth in 1950, where he went on to create some of the city's most outstanding homes, which used concrete blocks to play with light and texture. And it's these houses that photographer Jack Lovell, who actually grew up in one of them, has captured in his new book, Catching Light. I recently spoke with the photographer to learn a little more about Ivanov 
and find out how he was impacted by living in one of the architect's designs. I think what's really unique about Ivan's work is that obviously being over in Perth and also being the most isolated city in the planet, I think he had sort of free reign into a kind of, you know, practice and sort of do what he liked. He was given, you know, these really expansive landscapes. He had this very harsh climate that he had to sort of work within. And uh, I think that's sort of what enabled him to create these such unique homes. In Australia at that time, you had other architects such as Robin Boyd and, and then sort of later you got, got Harry Sadler as well. And I think because they were on the East Coast, their works were a lot more well known sort of within design in Australia and within art, like the architectural space. But Perth being Perth, it is very isolated. It is sort of, you know, the little city on the other side of the country. And it's been a real pleasure to sort of bring his work to a broader audience. I mean, it's been a pleasure reading it or, or looking at it, I guess. But I, I want to talk about Ivanov's use of materials, which are so prominent on, on your pages. He used concrete blocks to play with light and, and colour and texture. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, look, I think what's sort of really interesting about his work is obviously sort of starting out the use of materials. So I guess he's sort of most known for the use of the concrete vessel block. So a bit about his history, when he arrived in Perth from Munich after training there as an architect, he actually worked in a concrete precast plant in the early 50s. And so I think that, I guess, really enabled him to sort of get a better understanding of the material. And it's quite interesting that sort of later on in his career, particularly sort of the mid-60s up to the end of his career when he passed away in 1986, you started to see sort of the use of the concrete blocks sort of really come into their own and become just a really unique characteristic of his work. I'd say that compared to sort of other architects, I mean, first and foremost, I think he was an artist. Not only was he um, a trained architect, but prior to that, he had a background in art and sort of was really adept to doing caricatures and drawings. And so I think that when you look at his work, the layering of the blocks, sort of how he staggers them, protrudes, so he cuts into them and how he sort of then used that and manipulated the light in Perth to his advantage. It obviously creates a very sort of striking facade, but also there's, there's sort of not other work, I think, anywhere in Australia around that time or even to this date that sort of resembles that or sort of looks anything like that. So he came as that sort of European-trained architect but then brought that to Perth. And I guess I'm curious as to how you showed this approach or, or Ivanov's approach to his work in your photography. I think through the project and what I've tried to show is um, originally I started out sort of photographing the facades and, and I sort of focused on them and I was doing these big elevational shots. And then the more I, time I started to spend on photographing it, I got really sort of fascinated by the details and sort of how the blocks were layered and how they sort of worked with one another. I've sort of talked to certain owners and, and sort of other tradespeople that were involved on some of the projects. And, you know, they'd tell you stories about how he'd actually be on site, like directing them on how to sort of layer the blocks. And he really had a very hands-on approach. In the latter part, sort of in the past couple of years, I guess I've, I've tried to sort of explore more of the interiors. And I think that's really, even if you're aware of Ivan's work, I think a lot of people haven't seen much of the interiors and, and his ability to sort of spatially lay out these homes but also his use of materials was very unique he was you know quite progressive in his practice and he was using materials like laminate and jarrahs and sort of mixing that with the concrete blocks and materials that you wouldn't necessarily think would actually work together but when you see them layered and compiled into these interior settings obviously with his craftsmanship as well and the way that he'd sort of lay them out and and design them they really do create something quite special so I guess the craftsmanship is a key element, but is there anything to be said about the ideas or, or, or you know, the conceptual notions physically built into Ivanov's designs, whether that's in terms of spatial planning or, or, or the layouts of homes? Can you comment on that? 
I think probably what I found very interesting at first was um, considering, you know, I was walking to homes that were from the, you know, 1960s, 1970s, just spatially, his idea of this sort of like open plan living and sort of how space is connected and how sort of people interact with each other. I guess with a lot of the practices I work with today, that is always a key point of discussion. It's that how people relate to these spaces and how people interact. And I think going back to, you know, 50, 60 years ago when Ivan was designing these homes, I think that was very key to sort of what he was doing. It wasn't just about the aesthetics of a project. It seemed like he was very mindful of how the homeowners were going to actually live and enjoy these spaces with Australian architecture at that time. I don't think that can be said for sort of, you know, everyone else's work that was happening. So I, yeah, I I would say that he was very progressive. Like it wasn't all about aesthetics. I think he was very mindful in his approach to making sure that the homeowners were comfortable and actually enjoyed the spaces that they were living in. But I think, you know, it's just, it's certain little elements that you pick up, like when you're sitting in the houses, like in a number of the homes, when you're in the kitchen, you can always sort of glance across to the living room. So you could always feel like you could talk to someone who was sitting in there or, you know, there's always a sort of a sense of connectedness within the house. There's not sort of isolated spaces. So I found that very fascinating and, you know, very much ahead of its time. I want to ask as well about the people you're meeting over over the course of this project. You know, they're people who are also living and growing up in these homes that are carefully designed and, as you say, ahead of their time. So I guess I want to know, you know, if, if you found some easy common ground with them that you might not have had otherwise and if, if they had similar experiences to you living in these places. I think if it wasn't for the fact that I had grown up in that house and lived in that house, I think this would have been a very hard project to execute. Originally, when I sort of first started contacting the homeowners back in 2016, obviously I didn't really have any phone numbers or uh, email addresses or anything. So I ended up just writing them all a letter. And I explained to them that I work as a commercial photographer and I specialize in architecture. But I think what really sort of literally opened the door for me was the fact that I grew up in this house and that I had that actual personal connection to it. Another one of the homeowners, their daughter's gone on to become an architect and she's specialised in sort of like historical architecture and restoration work. And we had a bit of a joke at one point about how, you know, there's something in the water in the Ivanov houses where the kids all end up finding their way back into architecture. It was a really interesting thing to sort of go back and spend time in that house. And I was quite, I was almost quite nervous at first, I think, because I didn't really know what to expect. Will my memories kind of stack up? And, you know, is, is how I, my recollections of the house, like, is it actually going to be anything like that? But surprisingly, they were fairly accurate. So I think that was quite a special moment, probably a real standout from the course of the project. Just finally, we're obviously impacted by the places we spend time in. What influence did growing up and and spending the early years of your life in an Ivanov home have on you? From a very young age, I was sort of drawn to, I mean, from what my, you know, my parents and my mum used to always say to me, she was like, you're always like very well presented. Like you're always sort of, I think growing up in that house, it, it did it did sort of have a have an effect on you. I think you were just aware of kind of beauty that was around you. And so it's almost like something that you kind of strive for later on. I guess as I've sort of found my way into photography and and then sort of worked out that I wanted to pursue architectural photography as my sort of main course, I sort of have had a number of people say to me, like, I think that house really did rub off on me. And it's quite hard to sort of, you know, pinpoint exactly kind of what it was. But I think if you immerse yourself in a home like that, for a number of years. And and also there's some of my very first memories. Like I said, I was there from a baby until the age of six or seven. So they are my very first memories of my family and and sort of growing up in Perth. And I think it did have a, a really sort of profound impact and sort of subconsciously or not steer me towards this profession. My thanks to Jack Lovell there. His new book, Catching Light, is available through his website at jacklovell.com. Thank you
To finish today's show, we're dipping into the OnDesign archive to ask whether it's actually any fun to grow up in an architectural masterpiece. It's a question that Shelley Klein is well-equipped to answer. The daughter of textile designer Bernat Klein, she grew up in a Peter Womersley-designed house called High Sunderland in the Scottish Borders. It's a childhood experience she reflected on in her book, The See-Through House, where she charted her changing relationship with the mid-century edifice. Intrigued by this concept, we caught up with Klein to learn more about the building's beginnings and how it encapsulated the design ethos and work of her father. I think as a child, you know, you take your surroundings for granted. You know, what you grow up in, they're just normal to you. So I didn't really think of it as anything special when I was growing up. That didn't really sort of dawn on me until I was in my late teens, early 20s, and I began to appreciate that this was a different way of living and a different type of house to perhaps my friends. High Sunderland is a house that was built in 1957 in the Scottish borders and it's a modernist, mainly glass and wood building that was designed by the architect Peter Womersley for my father, Bernard Klein. My father was a textile designer. He designed for, among others, Chanel, Yves Saint Laurent, Christian Dior, mainly in the late 50s, early 60s. Well, the house was extremely important in his life, central, I would say. And he had been very influenced by sort of modernism, in particular the architecture, while he was studying in Jerusalem in uh, British Mandate Palestine. He was very taken with several buildings in Jerusalem. When he had enough money, which took quite some time, to build his own house, he chose a sort of unknown young architect who had a building my father had seen while travelling through Yorkshire, and this building was by a young architect called Peter Womersley. That building inspired him to contact Peter and commission him to build High Sunderland. And it really sums my father up in his attitude to life, in his attitude to design, in his relationship to the world around him. From the outside, as one close friend of mine described it, it does have a sort of feeling of a Mondrian because there are these amazing glass panels mainly rectangles in very bright coloured glass, in particular sort of yellows and greens, which merge with the trees that surround the house. So it was a very colourful house from the exterior. When my father commissioned Peter to design the house, he specifically required it to be a place for the family, but also one that where he could entertain guests and the living room sort of is a fine example of that blend. The library area sort of wrapped around the sunken living room. When my father started designing textiles for other people's collections, we often had fashion shows in the house the models, the leading fashion editors of the day would be flown up from London and um, come to the house. They would sit down in the living room and then the models would walk up and down the library. So it made a wonderful catwalk, as it were. 
and also the house was used when my father was designing knitwear and made his own collections. Then we used to have fashion shoots and use the house as a backdrop, both the exterior and interiors, a home and a workplace and a catwalk and all, all of these things combined. It has its wonderful aspects and then the things you don't really think about, I suppose. For me, as a little girl, I loved the house because I could hear and see my mother and dad from all aspects of the house because there was a lot of glass. So I never felt that I was cut off or anything. But, of course, there's the flip side to that. When you want to have privacy, that also it doesn't really work in a very open plan house. When I was a teenager, my room didn't actually have a door on it and I insisted one be put in. I think I described it in the book as needing something to slam when I was having a, a bit of a bad mood. Actually, the door that was put in to my bedroom didn't slam very well at all, so I was scuppered there. Also, the windows, I did feel as a teenager wanting to sort of bury myself away unseen. The glass walls were quite a trial to me. The only spaces that really you could lock yourself into and not be overheard was two bathrooms. So I did spend a lot of time in those bathrooms, sitting there grumpily. The house was central to my father's life, but actually it was kind of central to mine and to my brothers and sisters. It always kept drawing us back, and it was very special for all of us. Of course, I moved away and I set up homes in various places. But then when my mother died, I went back to High Sunderland to look after, as it were, my father. Not that he didn't need a great deal of looking after, but he was getting rather lonely. And again, it was a different appreciation at that point. I was very pleased to go back and to get back in touch with this childhood home that had meant so much. But at the same time, because I was looking after a very elderly parent who had very strong views about design matters, it also became quite difficult living in the house. There were many battles between myself and my father over design matters and things that were and weren't allowed, which brought up a lot of memories from childhood as well of disagreements we had over what looked right and what didn't. <laughs> when I moved back, I'd been living away from home since my early 20s in various places, and of course I collected my own furniture and things, and I do quite like Victorian Edwardian style furniture so I had a couple of pieces like that that when I started bringing them into the house my father sort of looked at me in horror at my choice of furniture because of course every piece of furniture in High Sunderland is very modern and was chosen specifically to fit the spaces. Some of the pieces were designed by Peter, you know they're exquisitely beautiful. There I was bringing these unspeakable pieces of furniture into his realm. I found an old um, Victorian desk that I rather liked. I found myself sneaking it in under a huge blanket as though it were sort of a criminal. I mean, he was very tolerant, but I knew from the look on his face that these pieces were totally against what he believed in design-wise.
designed a mosaic that he made for the outside of the house that also sort of was guided by principles of how he designed his fabrics. The mosaic was based on autumn leaves of the beech trees that surround the house. It would start at the top with the sort of sky and then the golds of the leaves and then going right down to the bottom to the sort of darker blues and blacks of the earth. And that way of working, of combining what he saw in his surroundings, in his fabrics, was very much part and parcel of who my father was as a designer. My thanks to Shelley Klein there. She was speaking to this show's producer, May Lee Evans. The See-Through House is published by Penguin Random House and available for purchase now. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Today's episode was produced by Charlie Fillmore Court and May Lee Evans and edited by Jack Dewars. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening. 